it's my very great pleasure tonight um, to introduce Jan Storm van Leeuwen, who is uh, had was about 40 years the keeper of the findings um, at the Royal Library uh, in the Hay, um, the world expert on book findings and their history. Um, and he has been um, a wonderful part of Rare Book School since uh, 2001. He gives both a general introduction to the history of book finding and this seminar tonight <coughs> that he is uh, giving here in Boston. And, uh, and it's just wonderful, I have to tell you, that the Walters' printed books are, are being used by Jan because I think that of the printed books in particular with their fine bindings um, uh, have been very little studied in recent years, historically mine and even Welsh, but I think that, uh, that now they're being really looked at again by Jan, by you, and by Melissa, who's been cataloging them, which is just wonderful. So uh, the waters have already seen great benefit from Jan and his influence on on young historians of bookbinding uh, in America. <coughs> and it's a great pleasure for me to introduce briefly him to Jan tonight, and he's going to be talking about bookbindings depicted in Greek. So Jan Stormfinding. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a great honor and a real pleasure to give this Red Book School lecture here, and especially here in Baltimore. Thank you, Will, for your introduction. It's a great pleasure to be here anyway and to have the chance to use this really marvelous collection which we're going to do shortly. My main theme will be the comparison of depictions of bindings with originals, while the margin giving some reflections on their commissioners or owners and the way these books were kept. One and a half month ago, I visited the United States with my younger son and my daughter-in-law. We made a trip from the southernmost point in Key West to New York and visited our friends in Rare Book School in between. During the election of Obama, we were in Miami Beach and two days later, we stood on the stairs of Lincoln Memorial <laughs> in Washington. Only two days after the election, a wooden wall had been erected there in order to congratulate the president-elected to wish him the wisdom and strength and the luck that he certainly needs. I must confess that it was a sort of emotional culminating point of the trip. But Washington has far more to offer. Shortly afterwards, we were already <coughs> in the art museum, and as a bookbinding specialist, I'm always looking for paintings, prints, drawings, sculpture that depict books, of which this museum has several interesting examples to offer. For instance, this torso of a bishop, supposedly Burkhardt of Witzburg, made by the famous South German sculptor Thielmann Riemenschneider, Thielmann Riemenschneider in Deutsch, of the late Gothic period. On the internet catalog of the museum, the object in his left hand is being described as a curving crozier. Well, now for those... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
who just like me are not immediately certain about the meaning of the word, and that was what I wanted to have first, I looked in Webster. It is a scarf surmounted by a crook or cross carried by bishops, that's what I call as a symbol of pastoral office and vocation. A staff thus, like the one in the hands of this bishop <coughs> from a people from the circle of Raymond Schneider. But can one ask, and you already did so, is the folded supple material with sort of clip at the upper end with a hole right through, really a remnant of a bishop's staff? Someone familiar with old binding types will immediately see that this is not the case. What is to be seen is the protruding part of the tail end of a girdle binding. A binding usually covered in soft and limp chamois leather, with which at the end is often brought together in a knot or in a clip. A still complete and also German late Gothic example is depicted in the choir stalls of the beautiful middle-aged cathedral in the town of Ulm in South Germany. According to the sculptured text, this is Quintilian, the Roman orator and writer of the first century. <laughs> it's nice to be able to present this exception because you seldom find Roman writers with girls. <laughs> <laughs> there are far more depictions of this binding type. Actually, a whole book has devoted, uh, been devoted to the subject. They occur in sculpture, painting, drawing, and graphic arts of the 12th to the early 16th century from a large part of Europe, and they are especially held by pilgrims. A woodcut by Joost Amman shows this. It was published in 1585, when the habit of making this sort of binding was almost over. With the leather tail, one could carry the book or hang it from the girdle by, for instance, a clip. Since the tail figures at the underside of the book, this is supposedly enabled the pilgrims to read the text relevant to the part of the day he was at without even taking the book off his girdle. In a slightly earlier painting by the Dutch painter Hieronymus Bos, Saint Hieronymus indeed carries the binding at his belt. It has a braided knot at the end, which is just visible. And it is nice that Firestone Library in Princeton uh, has a model of that time made by Scott Husby. A mourner by an anonymous Burgundian artist, so we have already had the Dutch and German and now Burgundian, made in France thus, carries his girdle binding in his hand. I hope you will make use of your stay in Walter Art Museum to see it because it's in the gallery here. In each of these works of art, the girdle book has the function of an attribute. So it gives the person to tell something about the person. It's always depicted complete. And it's illogical that only the tail covering is rendered in the bust of the saint in Washington. As to the condition of the statue, the Washington catalog states, I quote again, it has experienced some alterations since it was carved. <laughs> the square diamond-shaped cut on the chest was certainly made well after the sculpture was finished, possibly in order to fill the recess with relics, and quotation. 
our knowledge of the binding type may now lead us, however, to suspect that the alterations may have been far more radical than just the sun, and not only include the diamond-shaped <coughs> cut in its breast, but also the cutting off of that part of the statue that showed the girdle binding, which would be at least 15 to 20 centimeters of the statue. I even suspect that it was originally a full-length statue. The right interpretation of the object in the bishop's left hand thus yields information as to the probable original appearance of this work of art. And actually, I would be much interested to know if the fact that the bishop originally carried a girdle binding is consistent with the interpretation of the statue as Burkhardt or Bridgeburg. But I didn't research that yet. Although several hundreds of depictions of girdle bindings have been found, only a few originals are kept. According to the most recent research, no more than 23. I can show one in Chamois leather and with a clip in the Museum Hermano Wester Mianen, which is a sister institution of the Royal Library in The Hague, where I worked until my retirement. It contains a printed German book of prayer of around 1485. And that seems to be typical for the larger part of the 23 that contain religious books consistent with the <coughs> idea of pilgrims, probably. They actually all come from Germany or the German-speaking region around and stem from the early 15th to the 16th century, so a short period. Some examples, though, contain legal documents and are far larger than the pretty small ones. They were carried, as uh, one uh, uh, suspects, by someone riding on horses, or on a horse. Well, the depictions of the girdle binding, however, come from works of art from the 12th to the 16th century, and not only from Germany or German-speaking countries, but a far larger part of Europe, including France and England. They are above all to be found in the hands of saints or other religious persons. The conclusion can only be that the preserved originals do not represent whatever existed. Girdle bindings must have been made over a far longer period of time and in a far larger region than the originals show. So, depictions of girdle bindings supply us with extra information on the originals. The Washington bishop gave us the example to reverse that the knowledge of the kind of book is useful for the interpretation of the work of art. Here I give you another one. I'm an art historian, after all. In 1434, the great southern Netherlands painter Jan van Eyck made an altarpiece for one of the chapels that the British canon van der Paale donated together with a missal, a chalice, and a reliquary and some other objects. So it was not only the panel painting. It shows the donor in piety kneeling before the Virgin Mary. In his hands, he holds a small girdle book in chamois leather. It looks very much like the original girdle book kept in Göteborg Art Museum. A 15th century binding on an early 14th century religious text. Like Van Eyck's painted binding, the original does not only have the protrusion at the tail, but also flaps at the upper side and one over the front edge. 
But unlike the painted example, the overhanging parts are not that large. They are large, but not that large as with Vanek. In fact, no binding is known with flaps as large as those by Van Eyck, or for that matter, in the Riemann-Schneider sculpture in Washington. Obviously, the artists tended to exaggerate their size, and the reason for this may have been that they wanted the beholder to be absolutely certain about what they depicted. As already said, the Gurdle book seems to have been typical for pilgrims, or rather, for those that were sufficiently well off to possess such books. As to the Vatapala, I'll alter. The idea to have a girl book depicted in the hands must have come from him, because he will anyway have devised the iconographic program for the painting. He must have wanted to show himself in the painting as a devout canon and as a pilgrim. Old and sickly, as he was at the time the painting was made, we know that, he may have come to see life as a permanent pilgrimage towards Christ and Mary, and have wanted to make that clear in the altarpiece, which originally served as an epitaph in his own chapel. Most of the 23 girdle books are in chamois leather, but some are in textile. These very much look like chemise bindings, which is the next type I want to discuss. In some cases, the difference between the two is almost non-existent. The textile chemise bindings are often covered in red velvet. Instead of basically one protrusion at the end of the binding, they have protrusions all around, the tail one of which in several cases is a little or slightly longer than the other ones. The reasons these protrusions were made, as far as I can see, have nothing to do with carrying, but have to do with protection, in the physical sense, against dirt and dust, and in a more spiritual sense, against improper handling, which also has a religious background. Chemise bindings are even more rare than girdle bindings. No more than seven or eight are known to exist, but they too have been often depicted. Even more than with girdle bindings, the depictions can help us then to fill in gaps in our knowledge of the binding type. This can be demonstrated by another and even more famous altarpiece by Jan van Eyck, painted for Ghent Cathedral and completed in 1432, The Lamb of God. The extremely complicated iconography of this world-famous piece is still a matter of debate among art historians and will not concern us here. Let's rather concentrate on the Virgin Mary sitting at the right side of God Father for us at the left. She holds a chemise binding in her hands with broke protrusions along the edges, although the one at the tail is indeed longer than the other ones. The binding was certainly not supposed to be carried by the Before showing some original chemise bindings and depictions of them, I want to mention that there is also a leather variant of which at least a hundred examples exist. So <coughs> that's this one. They are normally far, le far less refined or look far less refined than the textile variants. The covering material with flaps is usually a secondary covering, which can, is also often the case with the textile ones, and more, but not always so. 
In some cases, there's wood underneath all as covers, and sometimes it's a primary covering. The Royal Library in The Hague was able to buy a chemise binding in 1988. We had extensive research done before it was bought. It was a huge price and we wanted to be certain in order to prove that the velvet in the first place was original and secondly was meant for this binding. It contains a book of hours uh, probably made in Valencia in Spain around 1460 and the binding is from the same time we think. It is beautifully illuminated by the painter Juan Marie or else the book is Italian. It's not yet <laughs> And then the chemise should be Italian as well. <laughs> the red velvet of the chemise has some small tears and we had to conserve it immediately after the acquisition. We, but for the rest, both the velvet and the silk lining at the inside are original and in a pretty good condition. The chemise then appeared to be, during that conservation action, to be secondary covering with under it <coughs> a full leather binding, blind decorated with small tools showing what I tend to call <coughs> crossing pieces of cord. In the pattern that is typically for the time in Italy and also in Spain. The covering pursues equally wide over all the edges and is decorated around the edges with braid of silver thread and with tassels. Walter's Art Museum is the only institution in the world to possess two originals. The first one actually is the reason why I said seven or eight are preserved. It completely looks like a textile girdle binding with only one long flap and a tail edge, but normal carrying can never have been the purpose of this long tail with frills at the end. It covers a manuscript book of statutes of the Company of St. Sebastian of Florence, written in 1499 and with editions going to January 1777. When I visited Walters in the summer of 2007, Will Noel and Abigail Quant kindly allowed me to study these findings at depth and take pictures, some of which are being shown here. The special feature of this binding is that it has a miniature on the upper cover and the, that miniature has been obviously made by the same miniaturist who made uh, the same vested inside. Like the long tail flap, I guess that the miniature must have had a rather ceremonial value than practical. Abigail told me that the textile has been restored at three different times at least whereby among the silk lining inside was replaced by a new one. The oldest repair may even be from the 17th century, and that is why we cannot be absolutely certain that the tail flap is the only one that the chemise originally had. It may be that there was more that has been taken off later on. This, this chemise is a secondary covering. The restoration report mentions that the blind tooled first covering is underneath. I haven't seen it because it's now in a good condition again. If you won't lift it, they wouldn't like me to do that. <laughs> but it's probably goatskin. It's described as being goatskin underneath. The second Walter's chemise is, oh, well, this is the first still. With the, you can see the flap at the inside. See that the uh, material at the inside itself has been replaced. And the second one 
is French and can be dated shortly after 1500. It comes a French book of hours from around 1500. The red velvet is the primary covering. So there's only the wood of the boards and the leaf and nothing else. So Walter nicely has two very different chemise bindings. Uh, the protrusions are all around, but also here the one at the uh, lower uh, edge is a little bit longer. The tail flap is, a, as I said, a little bit broader than the other ones, but is certainly too short for carrying the book. The flap at the front side is obviously meant to fall over the lower cover when the book is closed and has, again, a protective meaning. Here, again, a restoration was necessary whereby the original silk was uh, lining inside was lifted and replaced by a new one, but the original, of course, is being preserved as we do nowadays. So you've seen three of these chemise bindings, and I show you the latest one. Here you see the inside of the French water chemise of around 1500, and then the latest one that we know of is an English one or French. We're not certain. It covers a printed book of ours of 1558, which probably belonged to Mary I, Queen of England. Although a story has it that it was the prayer book of Mary of Scotland used on the scaffold at Fotheringhay in 1587. <coughs> in the first case, the binding ought to be dated 1558, which is the date of printing. And in the unlikely second one, between 1558 and 1560, so the difference is not that large. I don't know, I never saw it in original, so I have to trust what I see in the pictures. I don't know if the red patterned velvet is a primary or a secondary cover. It has flaps <laughs> all around, as you see, and the flap at the tail, again, is broader than the narrow ones that you have for the rest. Of the preserved chemise bindings, then, one is certainly English, and two are possibly so, although one may be French and the other may be Italian. One binding in Baltimore is certainly Italian, and one is probably, and one already referred to, is Italian or English. One binding is certainly French in Baltimore, and one is French or English, Mary Stewart's one. One binding is certainly Spanish, and one probably the Royal Library one. So there's a lot of doubt. <laughs> the other ones are certainly or probably uh, made for men. Uh, sorry, three of them contain books of hours and were probably made for women. The other ones, so four, were four or five, were almost certainly made for men. The binding in the Royal Library from 1460 around is probably the eldest. The others date between 1475 and 1558, or slightly later. The Royal Library chemise binding is the only one to represent a type that, according to the depictions, was the most popular, with flaps all around. There is no chemise binding kept from the Netherlands. The contemporary depictions of chemise bindings tell a totally different tale. When the Royal Library bought the chemise binding, of course, I studied quite a bit on it, and I made a database of these depicted chemises. They are sometimes difficult to be distinguished from the variant in leather, and especially when, they when you have a photograph that's not too good, uh, or when the colors of the chemise are yellowish or whitish. You are very uncertain what, if it's the one or the other. 
or when one has illustrations in black and white. And that happens. I didn't see all of them in the original, of course. Nor is it always easy to make a distinction between chemise bindings and books lying on a piece of cloth, which also happens, or on a cushion. And with unpainted sculpture, where usually the painting already has been lifted off long ago, it is usually very difficult to discriminate between chemise bindings and leather bindings. Yet, my research, which was pretty thorough, revealed some 250 certain depictions. Above all in painted and miniatures, and a few in drawings, engravings, and pieces of sculpture. <coughs> Whereas no chemise bindings, as I said, from the Netherlands have been preserved, almost four-fifths of the depicted ones come from there. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and most of these come from the south, of course, what's now Belgium. There are only a few German and Spanish depictions, and these mainly come from the regions under Flemish artistic influence. I found no more than 10 certain French examples and 25 English. I found no Italian work of art with a chemise line. Isn't that astounding? Whereas the original suggests that they were made for male patterns rather than for females, the illustrations tell a different story they show the chemise bindings above all in the hands of women and the Madonna in the first place. This annunciation of Robert Campin, made at the time of Van Eyck, may serve as an example. The tail flap, again, is much longer than the other ones, which are equally grown. Another example is the Madonna with a Christ child, painted by the master of Frankfurt almost a century later, and to be found here in Walter's Art Museum. Here, the flaps of the green chemise are all equally broad. Chemise bindings are often to be found in the hands of female saints also, and especially of St. Barbara and St. Catherine. This example comes from the Netherlands from the end of the 15th <coughs> century. The tail flap is a little bit longer than the other ones. And the chemise bindings are also to be found in the hands of female donors on older pieces, and less frequently in the hands of other persons. In the works of art, therefore, they seem to have mainly had a female purpose and a religious connotation, which is quite logical. By representing chemise bindings, the artist may have wanted to be able to recognize the book as religious. Sometimes they even show an opening with miniatures, which very much like those of books of ours. The book in the hand of a female saint in one of the wings of the Mines Bartholomew altar may serve as an example. In the depiction, the overlapping parts of, or flaps are seldom as narrow as in the original Royal Library one. Usually they're broader or much broader. By stressing the broadness of the overlapping parts, I think artists like Van Eyck or Campin must have wanted to make it, again, absolutely certain that the books in the hands of Mary and the saints was covered in these bindings and nothing else. Only thanks to the depictions, it is clear that many original chemise bindings, or possibly even the majority, we don't know, were made in the Netherlands. The depictions show them to have been made not only after, but also well before 1460. Thus, the comparison of large chemise bindings and painted ones shows how depictions add to our scarce knowledge of this important old binding type. On the other hand, the same comparison shows 
that artists like Van Eyck and Compan depicted these objects from real life and with a good eye for detail. They didn't depict just something. The chemise binding in the hands of the Madonna by Van Eyck depicts a type that existed, but is more beautiful and has larger tassels than we know from reality. Then again, the Holy Virgin, of course, only could have the best imaginable in <laughs> This, by the way, also holds good for that grand knobless pearls on the top edge of an egg's book. I never understood what it was until I realized that it must represent a sort of stick with bookmarks at the end that are often to be found in religious books and above all missiles. They can easily be transferred from one book to the other one and were, and therefore a lot of them are lost. The most luxurious ones I have ever been able to find are in silver, like this one, but again, shouldn't the Holy Virgin have the most, absolutely most beautiful example in her hands that just to be thought of? <coughs> if considerably the more girdle binds and chemise bindings have uh, existed and are now kept, why are so few originals left? With the textile variants, the fragility of the material is an easy answer. When worn and torn by usage of just lying in the sun, the secondary covering could easily be damaged and could easily be taken off, while the primary ones could be supplanted not too difficultly by a new covering to such a work. But this explanation has little value for the leather variants and is anyway not completely sufficient for the textile ones. A probably far more important reason why they disappeared has to be, I do, I think, with the storage of books. At the time these bindings were made, book collections were still small. A few books institutions or persons would have were kept while lying down. There are plenty of miniatures, I collect illustrations of that also, from the Middle Ages with books and they lie around in a small cupboard under a lectern on the ground or on a bench. A good example is this miniature shown Christine de Pizan in her study from the late Middle Ages. Another nice example is this book still alive on a shelf over the prophet Jeremiah, painted by the French master of X who worked at the time of Van Eyck. The books are all piled up, one on top of the other one, and not one is standing in the way we are accustomed to. We see, by the way, a probably textile girdle binding also there. I will not go into, go into all the, book, the binding types that we find here because <laughs> actually every binding is more or less different. The books are also lying down in a painting made for the church in Ivora in Portugal by a Flemish artist from the late 15th century, showing the young Jesus preaching in the temple. <coughs> Behind him, the artist has shown books as implements of learning for the doctors. Interestingly enough, it shows different kinds of storage and none with the books standing up. On the top shelf, the books are just lying one on top of the other. There is also a scroll and one who is even standing on its spine. <laughs> Below this, there's a lectern with three books, two of which are chained, while the cupboard with the doors underneath again contains several shelves with again lying books. Let's have a look at the two bindings chained to the lectern. I don't know what library the Flemish artist had in mind when he painted this, but the one still existent chained library in the Netherlands, in Zutphen, shows something very similar. 
The main difference is that in Zutphen the chains are attached to the top of top edge of the lower cover and not to the bottom edge. The chain bindings in the picture show paper tape uh, line, uh, show paper title labels at the top of the cover. This confirms with reality at the time. When books were lying down, there was no reason to put a title on the spine. The covers would be a far more logical place. This Austrian blind tooth calf binding of 1474 or a little later shows such a paper title labor on the upper cover and by the way the binding looks very much like one of those painted bindings as you see here with the same sort of furniture. Another Austrian binding from the same time but in big skin is to be compared to the binding on the left. Interestingly enough, the painted pigskin binding, the color makes it clear that it must be pigskin, has the label on the lower cover and not on the upper one, and this confirms what the originals show, the binding was sometimes stored with the upper cover up and sometimes with the lower cover up, in one collection even. The real Austrian pigskin binding, by the way, has a paper title label on the spine also, this was, of course, added at a later date, probably in the 17th or 18th century. When one finds a title label on a pre-1600 binding, one can be fairly certain that it was added much later on. The exquisite gold tool bindings made for John Grolier, treasurer of France in the first half of the 16th century and one of the most famous bibliophiles ever, were apparently shelved while lying down. The book title is normally tooled in the center of the upper cover, and Grolier's name at the bottom, Ioanni Grolieri at Amicorum. This binding in Walter's Art Museum on the Venice 1535 Opera Omnia by Jacopo Sanazzaro is a perfect example of this habit of Grolier. The binding, by the way, belongs to his earlier Paris phase when his binding still got a pattern of Morax instead of the later interlacings of which I can also show you an example in Walters. You see that on the upper cover of this binding, and you may ask upper cover, yes, upper cover. I'm aware that the spine is at right. <laughs> it's the Hebrew book of Genesis, written in Paris in 1543, which starts as we all know. The shelving of books started to be changed towards the end of the 16th century. The learned doctors in the temple of our painting had some 15 books, and it was apparently enough, but at the end of the, uh, that was at the end of the 15th century. Grawler had several hundreds around at the middle of the 16th century, and Jacques Auguste II, a Paris bibliophile of around 1600, had several thousands. These larger libraries lack the space to have the books lying down next to each other on shelves, tables, or lecterns. The standing position became the prevalent one. In most countries, though, the books at first were not placed with their spines towards the beholder, but with their foredges, which could then be titled, as in this example from probably the Southern Netherlands of around 1585. Because of this position of the book, the front edge received more attention than in other times. It sometimes even got a luxurious decoration, while the bindings itself would sometimes remain undecorated or simply decorated. The front edges of books from the library of the Venetian Odorico Pilone show this. 
while the binding is only blind too, the engine beautifully painted by Cesare Vecellio, a nephew of the great Titian towards the end of the 16th century. It not only gives us the name of the author of the book, St. Cyril of Alexandria, but also shows him while reading in his study. In many countries, like the Netherlands, the books maintained the position of the edge towards the beholder well into the 17th century, as is to be seen in this print of 1626, where some people say, oh, but there are raised cords, aren't there? No, these are the clearest clasps that you see. One can easily recognize it thereby. But in some other countries, books had already started to be turned round with their spine towards us. It started in France at the end of the 16th century, certainly, and I even doubt sometimes if the habit to store books with the front edge turned out ever became popular in France. Then Italy took over this way of shelving. It reached afterward Germany, England, and the Netherlands, was only in the course of the 17th century. As I already told my class, when the last judgment came, people said, go to Holland, because it will be 30 years later there. <laughs> <laughs> and some collections were kept in the old manner until well into the 18th century. The books in the Escorial near Madrid are apparently still in that possession until today. An upright storage with the spine towards the beholder makes it necessary for larger libraries to have the title on the spine. One of the first great book lovers to have this title's gold tooled on the spine was Pietro Duardo, ambassador for the Venetian Republic in Paris <coughs> between 1594 and 1597, and then he had these bindings made. This example is also in Walters. Duardo had a special reason for this. His famous bindings, all small and decorated with opals or branches around, uh, around flowers on the covers and the spines, formed part of traveling library and originally will have shown the spines while kept in a large box. In the early time of spine titling, no special place was reserved for it. It could be here and it could be there. But in the early the 17th century already, the second compartment became customary. This binding, again in Walters, was made for the French Bibliophile, the two already mentioned, and shows the title in the second compartment. Back to the girdle book and chemise binding with protrusions all around uh, that were a problem for the shelving, the new type of shelving, when they were stored, not stored lying down, but standing up. They became a problem. And what we would, would be more logical for people in the 17th or 18th century to detach the already slightly disintegrated secondary covering in order to make a standing position possible or to have the book fully rebound, which they anyway would do in the 18th century. The standing position that saw to it that also this binding, these binding types came to an end. I want to round off this comparison of real bindings with those in works of art in my own country with some examples. Uh, start in the century when we were more powerful than all the countries around as the golden age of Rembrandt, <laughs> Franz Hals and Vermeer. Unfortunately, that isn't the case anymore because we always know exactly what has to be done in the world. Franz <laughs> <laughs> Hals confined himself, unlike Rembrandt, to the painting of portraits. He was a sharp observer and his works seemed to give a true reflection of what the sitters looked like and sometimes we can doubt that it was Rembrandt he said this all looked like Rembrandt. 
<laughs> Although he worked with broke and fluent brush strokes. Let us take as an example the portrait of Marit's revoked class doctor. I have written it all out for you because otherwise you won't understand my Dutch. In the Amsterdam Rex Museum, painted in 1639, when she was 62 years old. She wore the clothes uh, we would more or less expect of a lady of her age, in many shades of black. She was a member of the Dutch Reformed, Reformed Calvinistic Church on all. <laughs> pretty luxurious and expensive also, if you looked well. According to her husband's high status, he was a burgomaster of Haarlem and member of the Dutch state general. The book she holds in her lap shows Franz Hals's eye for the construction of the object. It shows a gilt forage covered in a diaper pattern and a black binding with what was <coughs> and is still being called a silver work in Holland on it. A lot of silver. We can clearly discern the almost square corner pieces mounted over the edges of the board and the centerpiece more or less in the form of an escutcheon. On, of both silver cloth, the catches are broad uh, at the front edge and have a sort of point towards the other end, while the hooks have an oval in the middle. A clasp to which a chain was attached can be seen at the top edge of the binding. The chain itself, which would be similarly attached to the back cover, and allowed the book to be carried is not shown. The binding was by no means an invention of Halsey's. Several originals are known. In the same format and made of a very strong black leather with a market structure. It is usually called shark skin, but cannot come from a fish because it shows the implant of hair. <laughs> <laughs> Dutch bindings with these flat silver clasp and corner pieces and with engraved decoration, as in Halsey's portrait, date above all from the very early 17th century. They always covered church books, octavo editions of the Bible, the Psalms, with musical notations and sometimes the hymns. A binding that could be called a sister or brother of the one depicted by Hals is in the Royal Library, and you <coughs> see it over here. It's the same in all respects, but has lost its carrying chain. That was nice for ladies to carry around her neck at a certain time. The Bible was carried to church while hanging from an arm, as in a print that I can show you in Peabody, but it, it's a Dutch habit to carry them, or they were still carrying them to church in their hands, as in this photograph of a very strict community at the beginning of the 20th century in Holland. You will realize that I talk about the Bible of Marit Gevogt, back to it, as if it were a portrait of an object that existed in her time, and I strongly believe that it was so. The original, then, might have been a gift from her husband to her at, let's say, the 25th, 30th, or 35th anniversary of their marriage, in 1620, 1625, or 30th. The type of decoration was developed in the Netherlands after 1610, and thus the binding cannot have been a present for the marriage in 1595. Mm. And this is typically <coughs> as can be related to marriages. I think Marit uh, holds her own Bible in her portrait as it is played with piety, a nice gesture towards her husband who figured in the companion piece, and as a sign of wealth of the family. Here too, the knowledge of what book and binding were and what function they had 
gives us an extra meaning to the portrait. In order to show that Hulse didn't just depict uh, the paint a book, I now turn to the portrait of an old lady of 60 years later in the National Art Gallery in Washington. She has a booklet in her hands too. Unlike the one of Vogue, the binding is not austere at all and rather elegant. It's covered in brown calf and is tooled in gold by means of large blocks in the corners and the center. One can see that the contours of the blocks have curved and pointed extension of the sort that we call Persian. This too is a realistic representation, but of a type of decoration rather. I will not go into the Persian type of tooling. It suffices to mention that it came originally from the Islamic world, indeed, and was taken over by Italian binders at the beginning of the Renaissance, was then taken over by France some 80 years later, where it became really popular. From there the type migrated to Antwerp, where Plantin's contemporaries favored it when they wanted to make something really beautiful, and then it came to Holland. It remained popular <coughs> till around 1625, and then it really was over. The example shown here is from around that time. It covers a Catholic songbook and was made by the anonymous binder from probably Antwerp in what is this now Belgium. This style was rarely used in the Northern Netherlands, now the Netherlands, and was, as far as I know of, never practiced there after 1600. The decoration is to be found on many kinds of books, religious but also non-religious. So the booklet in the hands of the unknown lady represents a type of binding that, also seeing the very small format, can very well cover a songbook as the original shown, but not necessarily so. The type was rather made in the southern Netherlands than in the northern, nowadays Belgium, and not in the Netherlands, although our example proves that it was still being made in the 20th and 70th century, it was getting out of fashion then. Again, I think that the buying and portrait uh, of this lady is a piece she possessed and thought so important that she wanted it to be depicted on a portrait. If I may guess a little bit further, she may have acquired it when she was young, and that may mean that the original came from the southern Netherlands. A lot of people from the southern Netherlands flew after the sack of Antwerp, and mainly the rich ones, and came to the Republic where they were a very important group, and especially in Highland where Paul's work, a lot of his commissioners were from the Southern Netherlands descent, like Hulse himself was. Now, you may think that it's easier to recognize chemise and girdle binds in works of art of those in precious black leather with silverwork or with nice gold tooling than simple ones. Therefore, my last case will be devoted to a very simple type of binding and begin with Hulse again. <coughs> my life as art historian started with he also painted portraits of several clergymen, most of which are only preserved in old copies. Even these are sufficiently accurate to draw conclusions from the books in their hands, which, because they are passages, are in described in literature as being Bibles, and which have always the same type of binding. The sitters, if we look at it, as were as it were caught in the act of reading. They are looking up and have the book in their uplifted hand with the index finger in the volume. 
One of those is the one of Samuel Amsing and was painted around 1630. It shows the preacher with a long, a list case binding. We discussed that today. The sewn on parchment thongs that are laced through the folds between spine and cover with so-called yap edges, the parchment of the covering being folded over the edge, and a red foredge. This type of binding was used preeminently in the United Provinces in the 17th century for scholarly book and definitely not for Bibles or psalm or hymn books. The example shown here in the hands of my wife comes from my own collection. <laughs> it's a prize binding from the Dutch town of Brill, made in 1672. Obviously, the clergyman mentioned didn't want to be portrayed as preachers, but as scholars. Moreover, they wanted to be known thus not only among family and friends, but also in a large circle for these all these depictions, all these portraits have served as examples for engravings made after them. Here we see the Dembril binding like it is, and here we see such an engraving after the Amsing portrait. The least case binding was much in favor with scholars for their own library in 17th century Netherlands. The reason is obvious, they were cheap. The sturdy parchment could stand handling very well, and the yet edges and silk ribbons as in my example, the ribbons usually are broken off, protected them from insects and dust, and probably more important, solved that they didn't work. As long as the color study didn't become too hot and too bright, little chance in our moist country, <laughs> these bindings could survive a long time. The type was extensively used for small book experiments up to small quarto, if you don't reckon the blah atlas but less so for larger quality and, and very rarely so for folio and larger. Dutch small format prize bindings given to future scholars got the same technique until well into the 19th century when the technique was lo no longer used for anything else. They were given away twice a year in the Latin school as an encouragement for diligence to the best pupil of each class. It was a festive occasion when the prizes were given away the best student from the last class held an oration, the last class being class number one. The town of Delft sought with that orations were even published. These often got an attractive engraving on the title page. With this 7032 oration, it represents the interior of the Boulogne church where the prizes were handed out. I will not discuss the different scenes that are brought together in this one print, but will concentrate on the boy in the center who receives the prize book with a large epsilon on the upper cover. This is the special mark of the Delft Latin School <coughs> and refers to the choice of Hercule between the broken easy road and the small and difficult one. Although Dutch prize bindings normally belt by the coat of arms of the town that paid for the prize bindings, in Delft, the early ones indeed have the uh, epsilon on the covers. In this case, the engraving with almost hidden Delft prize bindings had no speci special specific meaning. It was just nice to have a picture of the happenings. I depicted it in my book, of course. But with the next depiction of a prize binding, and the last one I'm going to give, the binding was crucial 
for the identification of the sitter. This man's portrait, painted by the Leiden painter William von Mears in 1696, had to remain anonymous until shortly ago. The man's clothes and wig show him to have been a scholar. His left hand hangs over a table with two books, while his right points in that direction. So it's important, these books. Formiris was an adept of the very detailed way of depicting, which is known by the good old English term of fine malerai. We can clearly see that both books <laughs> <laughs> took a while. <laughs> we can see, clearly see that both books are bound in gilt parchment with a flat spine and ribbons at the foredge, the type just described as least case binding. The uppermost binding, the table, is lined with the lower cover towards us, two-thirds is visible. The ribbons are red and white, the edge is sprinkled red. The covers show a bright frame of lines, while the rest of the tulip is in gold. A small tool decorates the corner, and there's the large block in the center. The combination of gold and blind tooling already points to Leiden as the place where the binding was made. But anyone familiar with the block doesn't need that hint, because it represents Athena as uh, always done on the Latin, Latin school prizes. And the block, when we know that particular block was used from 1677 onwards, this original Latin prize binding in the Royal Library shows it with the same sort of ribbons to it. It's not the same binding, of course. <laughs> <coughs> it's practically the same, only uh, there are here two frames with tools instead of one, but you find both of them. I wanted to show this one because it still sculpted ribbons, which is very rare. <coughs> the Royal Library uh, has also examples of the other sort, but they lost the ring. The decoration of the quarto binding underneath is less easily recognizable, but the line in the corners strongly suggests that it was the prize binding given away in the town of Zierikzee. The line is to be found on all 18th century prize bindings from this town, either turned left or right, as in this example from the Royal Library began here. It can be excluded that the sitter had himself portrayed with two prize bindings because he was the proud winner of them. Uh, I mean, there were winners who won them each year and had seven or eight of them. That would be quite something. It is youth. There were so many people who got them. That was not distinctive. He was done so because he was thus recognizable as the man who distributed the prizes, the rector of the school. The portrait, therefore, can only <coughs> depict Dr. Lucas van Rijk, rector of the Leiden School from 1685 to 1760, and who was before worked in Syracuse. <coughs> From written sources, it was even known that Van Lierus painted him. When you find the portrait, you also <coughs> find a written source. So here the knowledge of the painting is essential for the identification of the portrait. With this tour of almost an hour, which gave examples from more than three countries, and a tour through several museums and libraries in US and Europe, I hope, ladies and gentlemen, to have shown you in what manner the study of book binding can profit from the study of bindings in works of art, and to have shown that the study of bindings can also be profitable for the interpretation 